Welcome back to another episode of Oh, the Good Old Days, your time travel ticket to history's dirty little secrets. This is Kinsey, and I'm a Christmas story old. And this is Ellie, and I'm the Santa Claus old. Your support sustains our spectral podcast. Bestow upon us a five-star review to extend our unearthly tales to more listeners. Help us thrive and expose more chilling history. Send ethereal requests for events you'd like us to summon. Isn't this supposed to be a holiday episode? It doesn't sound very jolly. There's a lot of ghosty references there. <laughs> it, wait, Christmas isn't about ghosts? I always thought it was. I suppose there is death involved. <laughs> All I know is the most famous Christmas story of all times is about a selfish man who is visited by ghosts. I know I'm not quite a miserly old man, but I do frequently yell at kids to get off my lawn. You might be seeing some ghosts this year. I'm I'm always quite the humbug. But instead of being visited by ghosts, I'm going to tell you a ghost story to commemorate this Christmas season. I'm here for it. And because it's the season of giving, I'm giving you not one, not two, but 12 words for a ghost in Latin. Ooh. And if you're wondering why I know 12 words for a ghost in Latin, I I don't. Some genius on Reddit put this list together. (laughs) So, Lupus Altus, I owe you an upvote. Link's on the website. Mastulum anima phantasma limores monstrum manis spectrum mortus idolum umbra spiritus larva. It sounds like you just did a spell. You're like summoning a ghost to you. Also, I love that larva is one of them. Some of them you can kind of see, but larva, that's interesting. I assume larva comes from that, right? I don't know. I had to put it at the end because it was that's, funny. I did that is double awesome. Tra- I did double check most of those words and they do mean ghost or spirit or phantom. Something or, along the know. lines. Yeah. That's I, awesome. Maybe I did just summon a ghost. A ghost. <laughs> you have to let us know. <laughs> It's the ghost of the Christmas courts. How about that? Oh, I like that. That works. Right. That works. <laughs> <laughs> All right, listeners, dim the light and steal your nerves for this bone-chilling account that will send shivers down your spine. And let me set the scene. Back in the good old days. Back in 1803, England put the pedal to the metal and launched its very first public train line. They were like, all aboard and looked into the future of non-horse transportation. Stateside, Lewis and Clark set off on an epic journey, hiking, canoeing, camping, and mapping like there's no tomorrow. Suddenly, America went from standard size to double XL in one swipe of the quill, courtesy of Thomas Jefferson. The Haitians kicked off the first ever successful slave revolt. They went, hey, Napoleon, it's not us, it's you. Well, good for them. <laughs> they probably said, Et Napoléon, c'est pas nous, c'est toi. <laughs> you know, I love my accents. More coming in this story, just a heads up. Oh yeah, I'm ready. <laughs> Even from a science perspective, 1803 was cool. Scientists were doing sciencey things, finding cool-sounding elements, rhodium, iridium, osmium, and cerium. No clue what they do. Maybe you do? No? I didn't do well in chemistry. <laughs> I passed, but that's all I'm going to say. <laughs> I preferred math. I just didn't like chemistry either. Mm. But you know what? Nerds rule. Let's just leave it at that. Yeah, they do. But let's face it. You're not here for a history lesson about what went around the world in 1803. You're here for a spine-tingling story. Because let's be real. That's what the Christmas spirit is all about. Fears and chills. Right? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Our tale takes us to a serene neighborhood in London, England in the waning days of 1803. As early December draped the cobblestone streets of Hammersmith and Fog, the town folk embarked on the quest of Christmas gifting. Yet, amid the biting cold and wind-kissed alleys, whispers of the supernatural surfaced, chilling stories passed from quivering lips to trembling ears. Around crackling hearths, dreadful accounts of ghostly apparitions chilled the soul. Such terror that this phantom instilled in the town that women and children dared not step beyond their front doors until dusk. I love that you use the term crackling hearths. I just want you to know that despite how spooky the rest of that was, all I'm thinking is this sounds quite cozy. (laughs) (laughs) I also want the listeners to know 
that Kinsey is not native English speaker and she wrote how to pronounce hearths in the script. I find that adorable. I just wanted to share. <laughs> oh, it'll happen a lot. <laughs> The thesaurus was my best friend during this script writing. Oh, I believe it. <laughs> <laughs> <All right>. <clears throat> that women and children dared not step beyond their front doors after dusk. Their Christmas shopping became a hurried daylight endeavor. All feared a run-in with the ethereal silhouette draped in a luminous white shroud. Streets remained empty, lest one encounter the elusive ghoul lingering in the darkened lanes. It's just me looking for late-night cookies. There's a place locally around here called Midnight Cookies or something like that. Oh, the cookies are so good. They do. They have, yeah, it's delicious. Yeah. And they're so warm and, oh, so good. It's it's perfect. Especially, you know, at like midnight when you're just craving a warm cookie. (laughs) You know how it is. (laughs) I I mean, the name, the store is Midnight Cookie. Please sponsor us. We're your biggest fans. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Send us gluten-free cookies, please. (laughs) I mean, money helps too, but I'll take cookies. Yeah, yep. Payment in cookies is acceptable. (laughs) So I do want to take a short time out here. I took a few creative liberties with the, you know, the the verbiage to frame the historical events in a spooky storytelling style. But the important details are all intact. As I delve into describing the ghost and recount the tales shared by the townsfolk themselves, those descriptors belong to them, not me. Just so you know, if you're following along on our website for the sources, I use different editions of the 1804 newspapers to put together this story. They're not referenced like I usually do it, but they're all online in our source document. All right, time in. Gossip wove chilling narratives about the ghost's origins, a tragic life cut short by suicide. The body was buried in consecrated ground, an act illegal for suicide victims, and the man was doomed to haunt the town. Patrons cast furtive glances throughout the local taverns while exchanging tales of encounters with the specter. Several brew house employees trembled as they recounted their brush-in with a ghoulish figure draped in the hide of a calf, adorned with horns and cloven feet. Are they sure that's a ghost? It kind of sounds like something else. <laughs> Say <damn. laughs> Oh, the, the, the descriptions get better and better and better. <laughs> Actually, you know what? It might be Krampus. <laughs> The men fled in terror, but the ghost, swift as the wind, pursued. One unfortunate soul was seized by the throat, nearly choked to the brink of demise, only to succumb to a fever from the ghostly encounter. But he eventually recovered. That's that's quite intense. <laughs> a fever Might, from maybe, ghosts. It, it sounds almost like maybe he had a seizure. <laughs> that's a less fun explanation. <laughs> mood killer. Right. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Another chilling account emerged from a resident who, while driving a stagecoach, was startled by an uncommon rustling sound, bathed in moonlight. <laughs> I don't Sorry. know what that means. I'm in an extra mood today. <laughs> Maybe we need to record during the day instead of night more often. <laughs> it's because I'm not fully awake yet. I'm not a morning person. <laughs> it's 10 a.m. I'm not a morning person. It's still morning. It's a.m. <laughs> It's all good. (laughs) Bathed in moonlight, a ghastly figure shrouded in white emerged. A phantom adorned with bladders affixed to its feet, shoulders, (laughs) arms, body, and head. No, hang on, hang on. Okay, (laughs) I already have questions. Are these bladders... Okay, so I'm envisioning them blown up like a balloon and then like stuck to, I don't understand how this is supposed to look. It, it sounds like I would not be scared of it because it sounds ridiculous. Now I'm assuming that maybe it was something shiny, perhaps. I, I don't know, but maybe they used bladders as like purses or things to hold stuff. In. I don't know. Like These I, I bladders not going to hold much. <laughs> If you have a of pennies. <laughs> I wasn't really sure what they meant, but again, these are literally their words. This is a quote. <laughs> the panic driver fled to the center of town, promptly spreading his harrowing tail. No mention if he emptied his bladder at the sight of the bladders. Yet. <laughs> 
I'm not doing a good job of telling a scary story. I think you're doing a great job. I'm terrified. Nothing freaks me out more than pee. Bladders running after you. (laughs) Yet, upon returning with a band of men to investigate, the eerie specter had vanished, leaving no trace of its unsettling presence. Nightly, the ghostly apparition haunted the churchyard where it was allegedly buried. One fretful weeknight, a woman's shriek pierced the darkness, resonating with dreadful terror. Though four male passengers aboard a stagecoach heard her cries, not a single soul dared to intervene and rescue the damsel in distress. What a bunch of wussies. Right? That's what I thought. Yeah. Feminism be damned. Rescue me from the the ghost. Yeah. Come on, guys. With each retelling, the spectral lore grew. Each tale a patchwork of fear that draped over Hammersmith like an ominous veil. The once vibrant town square, once alive with laughter and camaraderie, now stood desolate once twilight descended. Ooh, how poetic. I know. Like I, I said, like it. me and the thesaurus, best friends. <laughs> now, this was a time before the modern definition of a police force existed in England. Francis Smith partnered with a hired watchman, William Girdler, to patrol their neighborhood and catch the ghost. On that fateful evening, Smith guarded the darkened confines of Black Lion Lane. Girdler had previously encountered the ghost, a chilling sight of a spectral figure cloaked in a vast sheet, or perhaps a sizable tablecloth. (laughs) He gave chase, but the ghost shed its spectral disguise, the white sheet, and vanished into the night, leaving Girdler trembling in the wake of its escape. Another time out here. During the trial, William Girdler recounted his spectral exposure. As captured in official court records, the ghost, quote, slipped the sheet or tablecloth off and then got it over his head. It was just as if his head was in a bag. Wait, hang on. (laughs) Slipped it off and then got it over his head. It sounds to me kind of like it was a person who got stuck in a sheet. I'm not sure why. (laughs) That's what I'm going with. I'm going with that. Okay. (laughs) I I know that this timeout interrupted the flow, but this detail just had to be shared. I'm sorry. Absolutely. (laughs) Back to our tale of terror on Black Lion Lane. As Girdler patrolled the shadowy alleys of Beaver Lane, the adjacent street, a sudden gunshot ruptured the eerie calm. Suddenly, a vision of a man emerged from the darkness. It was Francis Smith sprinting towards him. An astonished girdler asked, What's the matter? To which Smith responded, Something very bad was the matter. Smith somberly stated that he shot the ghost. On their walk to the suddenly corporal ghost, they were joined by passers-by John Locke and Mr. Stowe. Smith repeated incredulously that he thought it was a ghost. As the four arrived at the crossroads of Black Line and Limekiln Lane, it became apparent that the victim was not a ghost, but a human. Ooh. 22-year-old bricklayer Thomas Millwood lay in the street. Millwood was wearing a white gown, as was traditional in his line of work. Mr. Locke swiftly summoned the constable, and they moved the body to a nearby public house for examination. Smith, visibly stricken with remorse, recounted that he had called out twice at the figure draped in white. With no response, he discharged his weapon. He earnestly believed he had encountered a ghost and was visibly distraught upon realizing the truth. This was a human being. I call BS. Why? (laughs) I'm sorry. You see a ghost, which you know is already dead and transparent. And so thinking, truly thinking, quote unquote, that it's a ghost, you shoot it, which is something that does not work on ghosts, I think this man committed murder. <laughs> and he knew exactly what he was doing. We will see if the courts agree with you. But, uh, I need to know. I need, I need to know. <laughs> but, when, but when you think about it, everybody had to be the first at something. I mean, we don't know coffee is hot until we spill it all over ourselves. Somebody mm. had to shoot a ghost to realize guns don't work on ghosts. I suppose this was early enough that perhaps people didn't know. I still call Cap. (laughs) (laughs) Now, contrary to his wish to turn himself in, the constable advised Smith to go home for now. 
following part of the story is from the trial transcripts as posted by London's Central Criminal Court in addition to the newspapers I listed previously. The trial kicked off on the ominous date of Friday, January 13th, merely 10 days after the heart-wrenching event. The prosecutor wasted no time summoning his witnesses to the stand. First up, John Locke, detailing the haunting events of that fateful Tuesday night. His account was backed up by William Girdler, lending credibility to the spine-chilling tale. Both attested that when they stumbled upon Mr. Millwood's body, his attire mirrored the ghost's appearance. White linen trousers, a jacket, and a white apron. Sounds like prosecution is kind of doing defense a favor here. Oh, it gets better. I mean, it gets better. (laughs) (laughs) But there was no mention of bladders on his... Oh, well, then it's obviously not a ghost. (laughs) Everyone knows that a good ghost wears at least 12 bladders. (laughs) Both Locke and Girdler, prosecution witnesses, mind you, painted Smith as a good-natured lad lacking a cruel disposition. He was just stupid. He was saving his town from the people, ghost. People describe you as good-natured. <laughs> You're simple. Well, this was a tax collector. I don't know if I said, I thought I said that, but I might not have. I stand by what I said. <laughs> then came the testimony of the victim's sister, Anne Millwood. Anne heard her brother leave, and shortly after, a voice called out, Damn you, who are you? What are you? Tell me or I will shoot. This is my very bad. English accent, by the way. Oh, that's what that was. <clears throat> yes. <laughs> a gun shoot. A, a gun shoot. <laughs> Don't cut that out. No, no, we need to keep that. <laughs> a gunshot soon followed. Frantic, she rushed outside yelling, Thomas, Thomas! But her cries fell upon deaf ears. Her brother lay motionless. and lamented that she never warned her brother to change out of the bricklayer's traditional white garb despite knowing the eerie happenings in Hammersmith. If someone shot my brother thinking he was a ghost, I think I might (laughs) accidentally see another ghost. (laughs) Oops. Oops. Well, he said it was a ghost, so it's okay. Yeah. (laughs) Another side note, while newspapers labeled the deceased sister as, quote, a very beautiful young woman in one account and a, quote, fine young woman in another, there were really no descriptions of how the men appeared. Hmm. Just the ladies getting the spotlight, I guess. Sounds about right. <laughs> Although everybody was mentioned to as Mr. Mr. Locke, Mr. Millwood, Mr. something or other, except Girdler. They just called him Girdler in every single newspaper. That's a very interesting detail. I, I thought so too. It was like Mr. Smith, Mr. Locke, Mr. So-and-so, Girdler. <laughs> I am so, if someone knows why that would be, please let us know, because I'm curious. The town surgeon, Mr. Flower, took the, I can't, his name is Mr. Flower. (laughs) The guy who cuts up dead people for a living is Mr. Flower. He he tried to pick the least offensive name for a a town surgeon. The town surgeon, Mr. Flower, took the stand next, painting a grim picture. He testified that the body was indeed dead. <laughs> well, that's good. That's, that's the whole reason they're there, so. <laughs> was it dead before or after it was shot? Isn't that what we're trying to figure out? There? Yeah. <laughs> when, when did the death happen? <laughs> the body bore a gunshot wound beneath the jaw, penetrating vertebrae and spinal marrow. Beneath the jaw? So he shot upward? How close was he? Or how short was Millwood? Yeah. I have so many more questions. This is this this trial is not helping. <laughs> <laughs> the face was blackened, a result of a close shot range. Apart from his medical expertise, Mr. Flower, again, still prosecution witnesses here. <clears throat> Mr. Flower vouched for Smith's character, attesting to his good nature, far from vengeful. Constable William Brooks spoke next, emphasizing Smith's voluntary surrender and good nature. With the prosecution wrapping up, it was now the defense's turn to bring their witnesses forward. I'm, resident- I'm, I'm looking up how close you have to be to have powder burns from a gunshot wound because 
I, I, this is getting more and more suspicious to me. He's close <laughs> enough to have powder burns, and he didn't realize that it was a person. I think this man straight up committed homicide. Well, h- hang on a second. When were lights invented? What, like actual town lights in, in the streets and stuff? Hmm. When was I, this again? Early 1800s? Well, yeah, so 1803 into 1804. I think they had street lamps around this time. I don't know. This was in a fairly populated area because they had the people who would go around and like light that, like physically light them. That would uh, like be interesting, yeah. Non-electric ones. So if someone knows, let us know that. Powder burns, according to Cora. I think you have to be pretty close. It's not something that you're going to be like standing across the road and shooting someone and they get fucking powder burns. Well, so he was like a rifle. And if they do have street lights, I'm assuming they're candle. Yeah. So that would make it even more eerie and dark. And, and I'm not giving him an excuse. He did shoot a man. <laughs> I just, I think it's... No, even with rifles, no more than four to six inches. <laughs> this man knew it was a person. There is no, no fucking way. Okay. Anyways, continue. Murderer. <laughs> a resident in the same dwelling as the deceased, Mrs. Fulbrook, shared a disconcerting anecdote. Melwood informed her of an incident where he inadvertently startled passersby in a carriage. One gentleman remarked about seeing the ghost, to which Millwood boldly declared he was no more a ghost than that man was, and he was going to punch him to prove it. Millwood doesn't sound like a nice guy. No, well, he was a young man. Young men tend to be a little more aggressive. Blame it on the testosterone. The concerned Mrs. Fulbrook pleaded with Thomas to change his attire to avoid confusion, but her advice was promptly ignored. The defense continued in their quest for an innocent verdict calling forth witness after witness to vouch for Smith's sterling character. One witness, a cousin to the deceased, spoke highly of the prisoner and insisted that Thomas and Francis did not have any quarrel with each other. Eventually, Francis took his own defense. One journalist described Francis as a man affected by shame and remorse. With difficulty, an emotionally distressed Francis stated, I went out with good intentions, and when this unhappy affair took place, I did not know what I did. Speaking to the deceased twice and he not answering, I was so much agitated. I did not know what I did. I solemnly declare my innocence and that I had no intention to take away the life of the unfortunate deceased or any other man whatsoever. Actually, he said whatever, which makes no sense to me, but... Or any other man, whatever. (laughs) He ends it with like... Now, whatever. <laughs> Old English. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> After closing arguments, Lord Chief Baron asked the jury to deliberate on the case. He reiterated that Smith was not acting in self-defense, nor was the shooting accidental. Baron further explained that malice is necessary for murder, but it's not necessar- necessary to prove malice between the prisoner and the deceased. He gave an example. If a man in the hall fired at random and killed a passerby, that would be murder, as a gun is a weapon. The jury deliberated for less than an hour and returned a verdict of manslaughter. The Lord Chief Baron, one of three judges, told them to pay attention to his damn instructions and go back. (laughs) (laughs) He said that they cannot give a verdict of manslaughter. It's either guilty of murder or not guilty. They have to weigh the evidence given by the testimony of the witnesses and either find him guilty of murder or acquit him of all charges. The remaining two judges agreed, despite testimonies defending Smith's mild-mannered nature and suggestions of misidentification due to Millwood's attire, Friday the 13th proved truly unlucky for him. The jury ultimately ruled him guilty, and he was sentenced to hang in nine days. Oh, that's an intense sentence, but I guess he kind of deserves it. (laughs) I think prison time might have been more... I I mean, in this time, prison time is probably a death sentence anyways. I mean, I'm more fascinated by the fact that the crime happened. Ten days later, there's a trial. Like, I don't know, eight, nine, ten hours later, the trial ended. And they're like, you're going to die in nine days. (laughs) The legal process back then was... Quite Swift. different. <laughs> yeah. 
In a cruel twist of irony, the man who shot a ghost was condemned to be one himself. Nice. Not nice, but you know, nice. It's a good line. (laughs) Lord Chief Baron, well aware of the notoriety of the case, reported the verdict immediately to King George III, who hastily pardoned Smith within hours of the verdict. Wow. His majesty required that Smith serve one year in prison instead. However, Francis received a full pardon in July 1804 after serving just six months of hard labor. Where is the justice? The real Hammersmith ghost was unmasked shortly before the trial began. Although it was reported in the newspapers, surprisingly, this was not mentioned in the court record of Smith's trial. John Graham, a local shoemaker, wrapped himself in a blanket to portray a ghost. In his surrender, Graham said that his apprentice was scaring John's children with ghost stories, and he wanted to scare the apprentice instead. However, Graham insisted that he only dressed as a ghost once. The magistrates were unsure of what to do with this confession and released him on bail. And I could not find any further court records as to what happened to Mr. Graham. (laughs) I mean, good for him for coming forward. If he only did it once, he could have just not said anything. (laughs) Now, you know, I like thinking about it. Mr. Graham, it seems like when... Girdler, because apparently he's not a mister. When Girdler was chasing a ghost who shed his tablecloth, yeah, could have been the Graham incident. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a very good guess. So I don't know, but nobody ever brought it up in court. Like, well, it really was a guy dressed as a ghost walking around. Because I think yeah. that would have been a better defense than I thought it was a ghost. Because there yeah. really was one. Whatever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, to be honest, I can't take credit for starting the whole Yuletide ghost story tradition. That honor goes to some random man named Chucky Dickens. I don't know if you've heard of him. (laughs) I haven't heard of him called that before. (laughs) Well, Charles Dickens wrote a story, A Christmas Carol. But the Brits aren't the only ones with spooky traditions. We can't overlook our cheery Germans and Austrian friends with their man-goat-think Krampus that you made mention to earlier. Mm Mm-hmm. That dude's got a dark side that puts the twist on the merry season. Now, let me sprinkle in a bit of Norwegian flair because I'm still campaigning for Norwegian residency. King Harald, please answer. Let us in. Let us in. (laughs) For more than 90 days. Please. (laughs) We're good workers. Especially as we come closer to the elections. All right. (laughs) Crying, but not really. Enter the Nisei. A gnome, an elf, a short man, someone little, depending on where you look. This wee fella craves a bowl of julgrot, a Norwegian for porridge, with lots of butter on Christmas Eve. Mm. If the farmer plays along and feeds the nise, the farm's got itself a guardian for another year. But if not, well, cue the ominous music because doom and gloom are knocking at the door and poverty's on the guest list. Gnomes are terrifying. (laughs) Oh, this this one is just as terrifying. I probably should not have drank my monster right before recording. (laughs) We're going to get through this so fast. (laughs) Legend has it that one soul dared to play a trick by hiding the butter at the bottom of the bowl. The Nisei, red hot with anger, decided to teach the family a lesson by killing the family cow. The cow didn't do anything. (laughs) After the bovicide, because, you know, the Nisei was still hungry, he casually strolled back to the porridge, and lo and behold, he found butter at the bottom. Feeling a tad guilty, Nise committed grand cow larceny. He stole a neighbor's cow and placed it in the murdered cow's stall. So it sounds to me like someone's <laughs> cow died and they stole the neighbor's cow and was like, sorry, it was the gnome. <laughs> <laughs> we hid the butter from him. <laughs> <laughs> No details were given if the butter-loving, cow-killing, cow-thieving Nisei cleaned up the barn first or what he did to the cow carcass. Mm. You know, if he went to trial, I wonder what his defense would have been. They were stingy with the butter, Your Honor. I was hangry. A better defense than I thought it was a ghost. (laughs) (laughs) It's insane that I thought it was a ghost was used as a defense in court, but I guess it's not the craziest that I've heard used as a defense. (laughs) Well, let's talk about a few more modern-ish court defenses. 
In the realm of unusual defenses, there's one that's etched into American history, the Twinkie defense. Dan White, a former policeman and fireman, served on the San Francisco Board of Supervisors. Disgruntled with his pay, he resigned and on November 27, 1979, entered City Hall through the basement window to avoid metal detectors. He then fatally shot Mayor Moscone and Harvey Milk. Milk was a fellow board member and the first openly gay man in California politics. Kudos to him, but that fact becomes very important later on. Yeah. The trial was riddled with just batshit crazy defense strategies. Douglas Schmidt, the defense counsel, compared Dan White's all-American life. He was a fireman, a policeman, to Milk's overtly homosexual lifestyle. Is that lawyer still alive or is he in hell right now? You mean 79, probably in his 40s, 50s? I don't know. Oh, good. So he's in hell now. Cool. Schmidt even argued that someone with White's esteemed background wouldn't simply commit such heinous crimes. Instead, they contend that a biochemical change had occurred, leading to diminished capacity. Yes, we call that entitlement. (laughs) Schmidt's defense delved into potential causes of this biochemical change. One psychologist stated that mood swings could be influenced by dietary changes. White, formerly a health-conscious individual, abandoned his healthy diet for junk food like Twinkies, Ho-Hos, Ding-Dongs, and Coca-Cola, all high in preservatives and sugar. Listen, eating a Ding-Dong doesn't automatically turn you into a Ding-Dong. You think it was one before. What a, so eating a Ho-Ho doesn't make you a Ho? Well, that's to be determined. All right. You and you I eat can't. it only for a week and let me know what happens. Yeah, we, we would try this out for you people, but we, we can't, you know, gluten-oddy and all. Yep. <clears throat> That's what it was. It wasn't the preservatives <laughs> or the sugar. Gluten-oddy. <laughs> now, the defense actually didn't try to raise the sugar made me do it. They tried to say it was diminished capacity, but the public fixated on the sugar intake. That became known as the infamous Twinkie defense. Even now, 45 years later, people still say that this case is famous for this notorious legal argument. What a, what a wild, there are some documentaries about Harvey Milk and then about, about this stuff, but what a wild, I don't know, humans are just such interesting little creatures, the things that we do. <laughs> oh, well, you know, let me get to the next story. <laughs> We're going to head to Canada, the land of everything nice. And talk about Richard Parks. I think you mean talk about. It was. Let's talk about everything nice and talk about Richard Parks, eh? <laughs> there Parks you go. Heinously attacked his in law. So he was the one not nice person in Canada, mm. killing one and injuring the other. Now, Ellie, I know you're going to ask, how, how is this absurd? Well, he did this whole thing while sleepwalking. <gasps> what a this- nightmare, literally. <laughs> this incident took place roughly. 15 miles from his house after sleep driving 15 miles to his in-laws and sleep killing he sleep drove straight to the police station and sleep confessed i oh my god i i have slept walked at times in my life and like or i'll frequently say or do things in my sleep like <laughs> i went through a stressful period where i started making myself sandwiches but sleep me would leave the bread bag open and then it would get all crusty and be really mad in the morning when I came out and was like, well, again? But I can't imagine. I mean, that was frustrating and confusing. I can't imagine waking up and being surrounded by the blood of my loved ones. <laughs> that's a whole nother level. This poor guy. If that's true. If, if, if it's a genuine, that's actually what happened. That really sucks. <laughs> Art, I don't, I mean, uh, I mean, I've never slept walked and I've never left the bread bag open. The shame, Ellie. I know. I also used to eat a bunch of Twinkies and I'd wake up surrounded, not Twinkies, sorry, Twizzlers, and I'd wake up surrounded by wrappers. The sugar this is prior made you to my gluten-free days. <laughs> it was the gluten! <laughs> because Twizzlers do have gluten in them. They do, unfortunately. Uh, yeah. PSA for anybody who's trying to avoid gluten, don't eat Twizzlers. Yep. Twizzlers, don't sue us. Change your recipe. <laughs> I've never slept walked. I'm having trouble imagining driving a giant car beating people to death and then driving to the police station and then saying, yeah, that's I am like, still asleep. And I, I, did. 
I, be- I, I believe it's possible, but it's, it's wild to imagine not being able to wake up in like at any point in that process and be like, oh shit, like what is happening? <laughs> I don't know. Or maybe you wake up and th- do wake up and then you think you're still in a nightmare because that can't be reality. And then who knows? It, if it was like random people that he killed, I, I might understand it. But the fact that it was his in-laws, most people don't get along with their in-laws. I think it makes more sense because it's like, if you're sleeping, you're more likely to do something that's automatic. So going somewhere that you're familiar with would make sense. Oh, sorry. Yeah. We'll see what the defense says. (laughs) Now, Park stated that his supportive and understanding in-laws knew of his sleepwalking tendencies. Family members came to his defense attesting that he frequently experienced nightmares and engaged in sleep talking. Parks faced charges of first-degree murder and attempted murder. During the trial, he presented an automatism defense. Five expert witnesses, unchallenged by the prosecution, testified that he was indeed sleepwalking and that it wasn't linked to any neurological or psychiatric condition. The trial judge presented only the defense of automatism to the jury, resulting in Parks being acquitted of first-degree murder and of second-degree murder and of the attempted murder charge. Wow. The prosecution appealed and appealed and appealed, and it went all the way to the Canadian courts, which, yes, decided sleepwalking is a valid defense. I didn't mean to kill them, Your Honor. I was sleepwalking. That's so... I mean, I I believe that's entirely possible that someone could do it. I do feel like, though, I don't think someone should be punished for something. I I, I do think intent matters. However, I think they're... I, I don't know. Maybe they afterwards put some rules like, okay, we believe you were sleepwalking, but from now on you're chaining yourself to your bed and you're giving the key to someone else. And if a house catches fire, that's too bad for you. Like that's gotta be, there's gotta be some kind of thing to make sure it doesn't happen. Like how many times does he get to do this? You know what I mean? Like there's gotta be some, something to make sure it doesn't happen again. <laughs> the sleepwalking serial killer. That's wild. I think I got an idea for a book. <laughs> Or a way to get out of a way with murder. (laughs) That too. (laughs) But I have no history of sleepwalking, and I literally just admitted in front of everybody that I don't sleepwalk. Damn it. We'll delete it. We'll delete it. It's fine. Cut it out. All right. So that was in the 80s. So let's dive into a case from our lifetime. Well, mostly mine, because you are a youngin' in the mid-90s. Still in diapers. You don't count. The 90s, uh, my awkward teenage years. And well, I'm still rocking that awkwardness today. Anyway, 96 had some epic movies. Independence Day, The Craft, From Dust Till Dawn, and a young DiCaprio in Romeo and Juliet. And then there's an absurd court case that even Hollywood couldn't have made up. Rod Farrell was an odd duck. Most teenagers were. Mm -hmm. Now, during his awkward teenage phase, allegedly influenced by that evil Dungeons and Dragons game. He began claiming he was a 500-year-old vampire named Visago. You can pick something cooler than Visago. You're not stuck. cheese. (laughs) (laughs) You're not stuck on the Dungeons and Dragons game, really? Because I I know you're a player. During this time period, I actually, I don't remember. Oh, I think I brought it up in our witches episode that there was an actual police document talking about how to identify satanic people and Dungeons and Dragons Mm -hmm. was top of the list. (laughs) so i'm not surprised (laughs) i mean i don't believe that he was actually influenced by dungeons and dragons but i'm not surprised it was referenced (laughs) he casually strolled through cemeteries slicing himself and offering his blood for a casual sip that's not like chapter five of dungeons and dragons i don't know surprisingly blood sacrifice doesn't happen till you're like a level 12 Ah, level not not okay not chapter level got it (laughs) so much did I did I mention he's from Kentucky? <laughs> Somehow that makes it more odd. Right. Like New York, okay, I'll buy it. California, I'll buy it. Kentucky? Right. And you should like, be playing bluegrass and riding horses. Seems this vampire left the bluegrass state. Yeah. <laughs> now, Visago, the 500-year-old vampire in a 16-year-old's body, falls in love with Heather, a Floridian teenager. Florida, right? That tracks. Mm, yeah, that tracks. That one, that one I'm not surprised by. <laughs> Heather tells Rod, or sorry, Visago, <laughs> that her parents were abusing her and she needs to be rescued. So the gallant vampire rounded up some friends and drove to Florida. There, 
Ian, his male friend, the others were females, used a crowbar to beat Heather's parents to death. Now, proving it was Farrell wasn't exactly rocket scientist. There was a metric crap ton of physical evidence. And then his friends and Heather also turned on him and said he did it. But he said he's innocent. A rival vampire framed him. Really? Nothing? I, I, I'm very, I, I'm actually very familiar with this story and I, <sighs> I feel very badly for him. The, the more I, you know about this story, the more it's clear that he was extremely manipulated and not mentally well. And I think he was actually not super intelligent. Right. It's, it's actually kind of sad. Because I mean, when you think about 16 year olds are dumb, dude. Yeah. Like, you can get a 16 year old to do anything if you manipulate them well enough. Not that I've tried. I'm just saying. If you're a 16 year old, you're not dumb, but you're, you're a baby. You're just a baby. <laughs> but at the same time, his defense attorney is an adult and should know better than to tell him yes. stop saying vampires made you do it, buddy. So yes. again, we're not, I mean, we, we are making fun of him, but we're not making fun of him. I, well, I am at least. We can, we, can make, we can make fun of him, but it is like, it's a very sad story. If you like really get into the details, everything involved is very sad. It, it is, but I'm only like giving a short, well, a, a yeah, long this is just paragraph. A <laughs> I think I heard a podcast about it. And it was just fascinating. But again, his defense attorney should have been like, shut up, sit down and let me do my job. Stop yeah. saying a vampire did it. <laughs> Stop talking. <laughs> he claimed that a rival vampire framed him. Then his defense tried the blackout defense. You know, vampires often forget their nightly escapades. But nothing sticks. They tried saying he was high, he was drunk, he grew up in a cult. But eventually he confessed and pled guilty. In the confession, he, some, he mentioned something about his grandpa being a murderer. The, offer, the officer asked him if he's ever seen his grandfather murdered anyone, and he said that his grandpappy, he's part of an organization called the Black Mask. Whenever I was five, they chose me as the guardian of the Black Mask, and the guardian had to become one with everybody. They raped me. And then they sacrificed a human to the Guardian. So they sacrificed someone right in front of me. Sorry, I think a vampire with a Southern accent is just funny. There's something about antebellum vampire, antebellum South vampires. That's something else. <laughs> but, but I didn't do like an antebellum accent. I did like no, a you Southern didn't. Kentucky. Was... <laughs> <laughs> I lived in Kentucky. Louisville is one of my favorite places. Don't hate I, on Kentucky's me. so beautiful. It is. It is. So it's sad. And if it's true that he was raped by his grandfather, that is very sad. But Not an excuse for murder, but... Yeah. Not an excuse for murder, but it's hard to believe that he was... I don't want to doubt it, that the victim, that that's not what I'm here. But you say they sacrificed somebody in front of you because you're the guardian and you're five and, and they raped you. Like, it's just... I think he was not mentally well and he no, probably... I, I, I believe that he was sexually abused, but I think that he probably... Conflated a lot. I mean, when you're that age, things might seem different than they are. Right, right. Well, the, the jury didn't buy it during sentencing, <laughs> and he became at 17 the youngest person on death row in Florida at the time. But his life was later commuted to life in prison. But then I wonder how long would, quote, life be for a 500 year old vampire? And if Gabe's hmm. your. In case you're interested, if you look up Rod Farrell in the Florida's Offender Registry, their inmate database, which of course I did, his yeah. aliases in a government database include Visago, Paddywhack, and Count Dracula. Oh, nice. Paddywhack. He's somebody that you could feel sorry for. This next person, I have no minute, any feelings <laughs> of empathy towards him whatsoever. This is from 2013, so you may remember it. 16-year-old Ethan Couch throw, uh, uh, throws a party for his pals. You know, underage shindig, beer pong, shots of Everclear, the whole shebang. While Ethan's getting sloshed, an SUV careens out of control, hits a culvert. No harm done, no one hurt. A few Samaritans decide to help out the distressed driver. Meanwhile, Ethan and his gang decide to hop into an F-350, six of them crammed in the cab. As the heroes were lending a hand to the disabled SUV, Ethan took the wheel of his car and played chicken with traffic at 70 miles per hour after shots of Everclear. Chaos ensues. He plows into the Good Samaritans, the ones helping, and then he swerves and he causes another car collision. Four people were dead by the end of this. Two were injured. Ethan, whose blood alcohol level was a 0.24, three times the legal limit. At 16, too, that's like... Uh, that's some brain damage there. 
he was arrested for intox and, and charged with intoxicated manslaughter and intoxicated assault. Mm. His defense brings in a psychologist that says, you know, Ethan's a victim of affluenza because, you know, rich kid syndrome, am I right? Uh, no, <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't buy that one. <laughs> you don't buy it. I don't Do buy I. it. The judge seemed to buy it. The granting Ethan 10 years probation and rehab instead of the deserved 20 years behind bars. Four lives lost, zero jail time. That's not all. Two years later, a buddy of his posts a picture of Ethan clearly not learning his lesson at 18 playing beer pong. What does the extremely responsible and upstanding citizen Ethan does? He hightails it to Mexico, of course. The law catches up and a new judge slaps him with 720 days in jail, 180 for each of his four victims. Justice. That's what life is worth. <laughs> maybe. Finally. I know I always say practice empathy and understanding. And we can talk about the, the Rod Farrell case in which you truly feel sorry for the guy in the circumstances. But in this case, fuck it. Fuck Ethan. Ethan, I forgot his last name already. Ethan Couch. And Judge Jean Hudson Boyd. Retired in 2014. She's the one who gave him 10 years probation. So fuck her too, and good riddance to that nonsense. I'd be curious to see what her sentencing was like with people who were not rich or who were maybe a people of color. Oh, they were not the same. Believe me, yeah. I look. Oh, and, and yeah. <laughs> the <clears throat> journalists crucified her with that as well, yeah. given like actual evidence. Like, I'm fine with, I understand wanting to give children an opportunity to learn and grow from their mistakes and, you know, thing, whatever, but. Yeah, that, that sounds to me like a, a very privileged situation. Yeah. His parents were rich. Yep. The ironic part here is his parents were so rich that they could afford him the defense attorney that thought of the whole, you, you know, you're <laughs> yeah. innocent because you're rich. because he's rich. <laughs> well, I mean, it worked, so. <laughs> it did, it did. <laughs> I wonder if the judge got any kickbacks too from that. We'll never know. Mm-hmm. Now, while we're on the subject, I'm going to throw shade at another judge. Enter Judge Aaron Persky. Mm. In 2016, Brock Turner committed the unspeakable act of sexually assaulting an unconscious woman. And what does Judge Persky do? He decides that Turner's a good old boy with a sparkling future ahead of him. Ignore the fact that Turner already had a rap sheet and already had a record. This golden boy is a Stanford athlete eyeing a spot in the U.S. Olympic-bound swim team. So what's the sentence for sexual assault? Six months in the clink and three years of probation. Some of the, like the, one of the guys who caught him doing it was so upset by what he saw that he cried during testimony. Yeah, the two Swiss heroes that yeah. uh, caught him. Fuck Brock Turner, I'll say it. <laughs> <laughs> I think everyone will say it, but like. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> the California Commission of, on Judicial Performance did their thing. They investigated the judge and found no evidence of bias. Mm. But good news here, the people of California were ticked off. They were so riled up, they voted to recall Judge Persky and recall him they did. Now that's a victory for the people if I ever heard one. To Longden listen, in summary, in the early 1800s, a neighborhood lost its marbles over a supposed ghost. One gallant chap decided to be the hero and shot the ghost. Plot twist, it wasn't a ghost. It was a 22-year-old bricklayer. The ghost killer ended up on trial facing the hangman's noose for his spectral misunderstanding. But the king swoops in and gives him a pardon and instead gifts him a year's stay in the slammer. And would you believe it, the era of ludicrous defenses didn't end there. Now, defendants are pulling stunts like it's not my fault, blame the sugar rush, or I was sleepwalking, or the timeless classic, my cushy upbringing made me do it. These are all t-shirts. <laughs> Again, we're not making fun of the people who this may be true, but the no. defense itself is just absurd. Yes. Yeah. One, Out of context, it's fine. Right. <laughs> One defendant even claimed that, a, that he's a 500-year-old vampire and a rogue vampire killed those people, not him. People just never cease to amaze me with their creativity. But what's worse than bad defendants? Bad judges. So here's a big screw you to Judge Gene Boyd and Aaron Persky. 
All right, we're now at episode 11, so we're going to tally up the score between the good old days and today. So if you're new or missed any episodes, this is the perfect spot to end the recording if you want a uh, spoiler-free experience. All right, after episode five, the score stood at 3-0-2. For non-sporty folks, that's three wins for the present, no losses, and two ties. Episode six delved into the dancing plague and mass hysteria. While odd events still happen, modern-day occurrences tend to have a lower fatality rate than those of the past, so chalk that up as another win. However, Episode 7 hit us hard with witchcraft trials and modern-day witch hunts, marking our first loss of the season as Ellie informed us that witchcraft hunts and murder still happen way too frequently. And at a higher death toll than in the old days. Mind-boggling, because it's, it's not talked about frequently, and it should be. At all, yeah. In episode eight, fake news took the stage and no explanation needed here. That's another loss. Thanks, Internet. <laughs> episode nine navigated through waves of beer, whiskey, and molasses. And while non-water floods still occur, there are far fewer casualties these days. So that, that's another win. Finally, the White House pets in episode 10, that's a toss-up because we still have adorable pups and pets in the White House, but there are no more squirrels or badgers, which is sad. So our record stands at five wins, two losses, and three ties. Not too shabby for 10 episodes into the season. Yeah. And there you have it, folks. Christmas ghosts, sleepwalking killers, and vampire teenage love sagas. Courtesy of our history's wildest courtroom defenses. If you've enjoyed these bizarre tales from the legal world or have your own jaw-dropping stories, don't keep them hidden like a ghost in the attic. Join our community by hitting that subscribe button Leave us a five-star review to help our podcast shine brighter than Rudolph's nose. And don't forget to spread the word faster than rumors of a haunted house. We'll be back soon with more absurd moments from the annals of history. Until then, remember, sometimes the truth is stranger than fiction, and even the weirdest cases have their day in courts. Be sure to find us and follow us online at OtheGodPod, that is O-H-T-H-E-G-O-D-P-O-D. We are on Facebook, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube. Give us a follow and interact with us. We like talking to you. You know what? We should start a new trend of telling a ghost story every Christmas. Now, the glutinati will take over Thanksgiving, but we're going to keep Christmas ghostful, I guess. Yes, I think that's, I think that's fair. <laughs> All right, have a good one. <laughs>